Thanks very much. Uh, before I, I start, um, can we have a round of applause for the worship band? Because they were just incredible. They just... I, I mean it. I mean it. I'm a testosterone-filled man as well, and I was crying. Just incredible stuff. Thanks, guys. Uh, and what I like about it is that um, like, I haven't told anybody what my talk's about. Carl just said, do you want to come and, and preach? I didn't tell him what the talk's called. I didn't speak to the worship band. The name of the talk is I Am a Child of God, which is quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. And Carl just did the first bit of it by talking about what you were saying about... But it's all right. I'll cut it shorter. I'll only do, I'll only do four hours. Uh, so I am, a, I am a comedian, that's my job, but I'm also a, a preacher, I'm not here. I, I want you to laugh, I do want you to laugh, you are allowed to laugh. I really believe you, you should have a good time listening to the good news, I do believe that. But I'm here to preach the gospel, we're here to talk about good news, that's what gospel means, it means good news. And if you're speaking to a Christian and you're hearing something that doesn't sound like good news, it's probably not the gospel. So the question is, to start off this, um, who are you? Who are you? That's the question. Who do you believe yourself to be? Are you what atheism says you are? Are you a collection of molecules, randomly organised, galloping towards extinction? And it doesn't matter how you live your life, it doesn't matter how you live your life, how successful you are, how nice you are, how evil you are, whether you die at nine months or ninety, if atheism is true, then your great reward is extinction, annihilation. That's it. The universe has let you down, and it doesn't care. Are you that person? Is that who you are? Some of these are rhetorical questions. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I loved you in Dukes of Hazard as well. You were fantastic. Uh, um, Sometimes the comedy will just spill out accidentally. I can't, I can't help it. So do you, do you believe in your heart that what, the atheism is true? Is that what you believe about yourself? Are you, on the other hand, what religion says you are? Are you what religion says you are? Are you a wicked, evil, filthy human being who needs to start behaving properly? And if you don't start behaving properly then this angry God, who never really does anything for you other than judges you and is really annoyed with you the whole time, will punish you eternally. Is that who you are? Is that your identity? Is that what you think of yourself? Is that how you think of yourself? Because that's what religion says you are. Are you, third option, thank goodness, thank goodness not the, those are not the only two choices. Are you what the God of the Bible says that you are. And it might be interesting, if you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, to hear me talking about religion and the God of the Bible as two different things, but they are. Religion is not Christianity. The God of the Bible says this about you, says several things, lots of things. Hello, baby. <laughs> so the God of the Bible says about that little boy, thank goodness. <laughs> That's the end of the talk. The God of the Bible says about that little boy and, and all of you um, that he knew you before he made you in your mother's womb. And he chose to, make you, chose to make you anyway because you were worth it. He knew you and he made you. It says that about you. It says, Carl mentioned one th uh, Psalm 139. It says that God's thoughts about you are more numerous than grains of sand on a beach. He's thinking about you all the time. Is that who you are? Are you someone who was created for a purpose by a God that the book of Ephesians tells you created you to be like him, not to be a God, but to be like him, to have all the things, all the good things that he has on offer. Are you that person? 
Are you somebody who was born for freedom? Who was born to know a loving father and to be a child of that loving father? Is that who you are? This is the question. Who are you? What's your identity? And where are you going to choose to put your identity? Because whatever you believe about the world, you do believe certain things about yourself. You, no one believes nothing. No one believes here that if I put a gun to your head and pulled the trigger and there was a bullet in it, you would be unharmed. We all believe things. We all believe things about ourselves. And if we believe the truth, it will set us free. If we believe lies, whatever those lies are, it will harm us. It will damage us. So we're going to talk about that. And <laughs> it's interesting when a comedian comes up and starts like being really bleak. But you've got to get the bleak stuff out of the way. You've got to get the bad news out of the way before you can have the good news. That's just how life works. You can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion, can you? You can't. Without the crucifixion, the resurrection is just a bloke going outside. <laughs> I do that all the time. Right. So, let me tell you, um, that's not mine, um, <laughs> but a slapstick. Uh, let me tell you, as a thought experiment, what the Lord is saying to you as a church. Not just you as a church, but you individually. If you're already a Christian here, and you're part of this church, this is what God says to you. And I want to try this as a thought experiment. So, Redeemer King, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on you. Because the Lord has anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent you to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's about you. Now my question is, do you believe that? Now obviously that's Isaiah 61 and it's written 3,000 years ago and it's about primarily the coming of Jesus. But my question is, if it's not about you at all, then what in the Bible is about you? If it's just an inspirational book, old book that doesn't really tell you anything about yourself, then what's the point of it? There's loads of inspirational old books. Homer did a couple. Like, if it's not about you in some degree, how can it possibly change your life? Are you with me? Do you, do you at least understand what... You don't have to agree, but you're at least on the same page. For instance, we had a barbecue uh, over the summer. Last time we had a barbecue, and I cooked it, and I cooked loads of meat, and it was in this big park. And uh, when the meat was ready, I shouted, meat's ready. Now, the, person that, the people who heard it first were the Carl Beaches of this world, the people who, who bring those little stubby beers from, like, Morrison's, and they sit and they wait for the steak before anybody else can have it. <laughs> the sound reached those people first, the people who are sitting closest to the barbecue. But I made sure that my voice carried so that the, ch the kids playing in the forest, in the woods, far away at the edge of the park, also heard it. So what I'm saying is, Isaiah 61 was written 3,000 years ago. You are not the primary audience, but the voice carries. The voice of God has carried through the decades and the generations and the eons so you can hear it and you can understand that it's about you. And it's for you. So we'll come back to that. But the question is, like, at what point, just as Carl said, at what point are you going to choose to believe some of this stuff? We're not talking about do you believe in creation or evolution. Are the truths of God, are the things that he says about you, are they true? And if they are true, are you going to live as though they're true? Because if you don't live as though these things are true, if you don't live as though you're a child of God, you will live as though you're not a child of God. And that will have a massive impact on your life. So, I live in, I live in Huddersfield, and I was, uh, 
I was there when, you know they got promoted last year, they won the playoff final, they beat Reading on penalties. And I was there, I wasn't at the match, I was, I was having a cheeky Nando's in town. And um, I was there, as they came swarming out the pubs, they'd won on penalties, they got into the premiership, they came swarming out the pubs, and they were going crazy, they were racing over the place, people were taking their clothes off. This one, this one guy comes up to me, he goes, Here mate, isn't it great news? Isn't it great news? We're in t -t -t premiership, isn't it great news? I have to say, that is quite a good Huddersfield accent. However... <laughs> It is also my generic northern accent. If that had happened in Newcastle upon time, same accent. <laughs> he said, isn't it great news? And I thought, oh my goodness, me. Because he, he said it and then he raced off. He didn't wait for my response. He raced off and he told someone else. And I, sat, I stood there and I thought, oh my goodness, me. This guy's an evangelist. <laughs> I mean it. This guy's an evangelist. This guy has seen something, experienced something that has changed his life. It has filled him with joy. And do you know why he was a good evangelist? Because he didn't care what I thought. He wasn't bothered. Whether I knew anything about football, whether I liked Huddersfield Town, the answer is yes to the first question and no to the second. <laughs> he wasn't bothered. He told me and he went off to tell somebody else. My question is, it's not my question, my, my, my feeling is this. I don't know many Christians who are that excited about Jesus as this guy was about Huddersfield Town. Sometimes I am and sometimes you are, but not all the time. But why not? Because it's good news. In Luke chapter 2, when the angels appeared to the shepherds on the hillside at the birth of Jesus, they say, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, not just people who win on penalties. All people. Why aren't we sharing it? It's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. In the book of Acts, uh, Acts 14, I love Acts. It's just the adventures of the first Christians, how they became uh, Christians, how they went around causing riots all over the place. It was it's brilliant. And in Acts 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas in Derby and Lystra. Uh, they've, uh, they've, been in, they've been in Lystra. They go along the A50 to Derby. Um, a lot of the book of Acts is set in the East Midlands. I don't know if you know that. But they're having a great time. They're having a great time. They're preaching the gospel. Some disabled guy gets healed. It's fantastic. The crowd are loving it. The crowd, though, then get confused. They say, oh, you guys must be Greek gods. Let's sacrifice some oxen to you. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, no, you don't understand. We're just men like you. We're here to tell you about Jesus. The crowd won't listen. No, 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 no. You're definitely Greeks. Let's get the barbecue on. Then a group of uh, Jewish guys from another place come down. They turn the previously receptive crowd into a riotous mob. It all kicks off. Paul gets absolutely battered. They throw him out of the city like the cat at the end of the Flintstones, right? They leave him for dead. The apostles gather around. They pray for him. He gets back up. And what does he do? What does he do? He goes back in. He goes back in. He goes back into the place where he's been met with confusion, cynicism, and physical violence. And he goes back in. Why? Because isn't it great news? <laughs> it's good news. And that's why he calls it the gospel. He's got good news of great joy. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care what people think. Compare this with me, right? Compare this with me. So before we moved to Huddersfield, we lived in... Uh, Moss Side in Manchester, which is it's not as bad as it sounds. It's got a Christian bakery called Baguette Behind Me Satan. It's, um, <laughs> that bit's not true. Uh, <laughs> so we moved, right, we, we moved from um, a Coronation Street style terrace house. We moved to a cul-de-sac in a slightly nicer part of, of, of Moss Side. And um, my wife said to me, like, I'll unpack the boxes. You go down the road to Aldi and get us some basic provision. So you come out of the, um, the cul-de-sac uh, we, we moved to, and like 200 yards on the left, there's a, there's a massive Aldi. You're familiar with Aldi, aren't you? 
Yeah, it's like Waitrose for poor people. People like me. So you come out. So I'm in Aldi. She says, I'll pack the boxes. I go to Aldi. I'm getting all the basic provisions that you can get from Aldi. Uh, bread, milk, uh, fishing rod. It's all in the middle aisle, isn't it? It's just all there. Oh, a donkey on sale. I'll have a donkey. Come on, mate. It's Palm Sunday after all. Um, now, I'm in the queue in Aldi behind the woman who turns out to be my new next-door neighbour. I don't know if she's my new next-door neighbour at the time, but she is. Lovely lady, 82 years old, quite, quite frail. Anne, her name is. Now, I didn't know she was my next-door neighbour. Had I known she was my new next-door neighbour, of course, I would have made polite conversation. Equally, had Anne known that I was her new next-door neighbour, uh, she might not have looked quite as petrified when I followed her home, everyone. This is the... Um, <laughs> The first 100 yards were absolutely fine, absolutely no threat there whatsoever. But once we got back to the cul-de-sac and Anne saw that I was still gaining ground like Terminator 2, <laughs> it became obvious that she thought I was going to muck her. And to be honest, part of me was thinking, well, you've done the legwork now. <laughs> She'll yield easily, take the fishing rod and go and live in the woods. I would never do that. I wouldn't do that. I didn't have chance. Anne saw that I was there panicked and sprinted inside her house like the Usain Bolt of the octogenarian world. She slammed the, she slammed the door shut and I heard it bolt. I thought, oh my goodness me, what an absolute moron I am. I'm here to build community, not to decimate it. I've only, be, I've only been here for two hours. This poor lady, I can't allow her to think there's some kind of horrendous stalker on the loose. I'd better go over and explain. <laughs> so I went to knock on the door. She didn't answer, as you can imagine despite me standing outside saying, I know you're in there, I just want to talk. You'd hope that's where the story ends, it's not. Um, as it turns out, the only reason that Anne was in Aldi in the first place was to buy a lovely Victoria sponge cream cake uh, as a welcome gift for her new neighbours that she brought around later on that day. Now, later on that day, I'm in, I'm in, in the house. Uh, my wife has, has taken our uh, daughters out to see some of the other neighbours, but I don't know anyone else. So when the doorbell goes, I'm just expecting my family to return. I've got young girls. I've got two young daughters. And if you've got young kids or you know young kids, you'll know that what young kids really like is when fully grown adults act like young kids. I've got this thing I do with my girls all the time. They love it. They can't get enough of it. They won't see me, and I'll just be creeping up on them, and they won't see or hear me, and then I'll just appear from nowhere. They love that. So... Um, the doorbell goes. I think it's my fam. Some of you look at me as though this isn't true. This is true. This is true. The doorbell goes. I think it's my family returning. It's not. It's 82-year-old Anne clutching a Victoria sponge. <laughs> Presumably still quaking from the weird stalker who may still be on the loose for all she knows. I wish this wasn't true, but I promise you it is. I heard the door, I went to the front door, I unbolted the door, and I opened the door to Anne, thinking it was my daughter. I opened the door to Anne like this. Hello! <laughs> Just take that cake off you there, thanks very much. So, now the point is this, the point is this, the point is this. For, for weeks, weeks after that, I couldn't speak to Anne. I couldn't go out the house. If I heard her, heard her coming out the house to get into her car, I would sometimes close the curtains. I might lie on the floor. I couldn't bear to see her because I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I, I was making it all about me. Like we'd, I decided that we'd come to build community, but I thought, no, I can't build community with Anne. I'll do it with other people. I'll be able to share the gospel with other people, but not Anne because I'm so embarrassed. The problem is that... like. That's wrong. I'd made it all about me. I'd made it all about my pride. I was living in fear. And the, the thing is that 
the Bible says a couple of things about fear. It says, first of all, I've not been given a spirit of fear. I've been given a, a spirit of love, power, and self-control. And it also tells me, the Bible, if I choose to believe that the words are true, that there is one thing and one thing only that casts out all fear, and it's perfect love. Perfect love is a person, not a thing. It's Jesus, okay? So if I'm a Christian, if I'm a Christian, as I claim to be, and I'm sitting, living in fear, partnering with fear, then something's wrong. And what is wrong is that I don't understand that the words of the Bible are about me, that they're talking to me. If I'm living in fear, then I don't understand how perfectly loved I am. Do you understand? Are you with me? I'm glad you are, sir. <laughs> I'll just do my preaches to you in future. You can come to my house. It'll be, it'll be a quicker journey. See, the Bible doesn't say, the Bible says, do not be afraid 365 times, once for every day of the year. It doesn't say anything more than it says that. It doesn't say, don't feel afraid. And it doesn't say, don't be the Eiffel Tower, or don't be a badger, or don't be a Spurs fan. God knows that there's no chance of anyone being any of those things. <laughs> like, God knows that our instinct is, is to survive, is to self-preserve, is to be afraid. He knows that. That's why he says, do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. It doesn't say perfect love can cast out all fear, or might if you're lucky. It does, if we let it. And how do we let it? We let it by believing that it's true, first of all, and then just receiving it. That's the difference between good news and good advice. I'll come to that later. So what is the problem? What is the problem for us? As, as, as if people are here already Christians, why, why are we reading it? Because like, we would all say, yeah, I believe the Bible is true. Even if you say, I think it's literal, or I just believe it, 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 it's true, it's literate, or whatever. Like, we would still believe that conceptually, it's true, conceptually I believe that perfect love casts out all of fear. So why don't I live as though that's true? Because the gospel is never heard in isolation. If you only live by the gospel, you'll have an amazing life and people will become Christians left, right and centre. The problem is that we hear lots of other things aside from the gospel. We have lots of other things alongside the gospel. So my problem for me, it might be the same for you, but my story is that I became a Christian into a society that was already nominally Christian. I became, I inherited a Christianity that wasn't biblical Christianity. I inherited, if you like, middle class Christianity. And some of you, looking around, some of you are quite well dressed. I assume you've got the same problem as me. I inherited middle class Christianity. I was, I was told, I was told by the people around me that what was most important in life was to make something of myself. Don't get me wrong, we liked Jesus. We would have voted Jesus in an election. We were pro-Jesus. But I was told by the people around me that what was most important was to make something of myself. You strive to get yourself a good education so you can get a good job, so you can get a mortgage, so when your kids come along, they can get a good education and a good job, and it goes on and on and on. The problem is that Philippians 2 talks about Jesus and says, and well, it disagrees with, uh, with middle-class Christianity, because Philippians 2 says of Jesus, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself what? Famous? Wealthy? Nothing. Jesus made himself nothing. He didn't make himself successful. He was the least successful leader in the world. He made himself nothing. Why? So that God could be glorified through him. I inherited a middle-class Christianity where I was told, no, I was shown, I wasn't told, because people said the right things, but they lived as though they didn't believe those things. I was shown by how people lived that life wasn't all about Jesus. It wasn't. It was about providing security and comfort for yourself and your family. Now, those aren't bad things. That's good advice, but it's not good news. 
It's not the gospel. And Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, disagrees with middle-class Christianity because right at the start of the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says of Jesus that God the Father made the universe through him and appointed him heir to all things. Head of all things. It says of Jesus that he is the full radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things, all things by his powerful word. My friends, the Bible tells us that life is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And if it's not, and it might not be, then the Bible's lying and we don't have to take any of it seriously. Forget it. Let's forget this nonsense about the greatest story ever told. Let's agree in front of everybody that the greatest story ever told is the Princess Bride. (laughs) Or Under Siege 2. Those are great stories. However, if the Bible is not lying, then somebody else has been. And in my case, it's middle class Christianity. Because do you know what? (laughs) I inherited a Christianity where the good news was basically that I was raised in the West. That that was it. You've been very lucky. God's been very good to you. You know, you're not going to die of an easily curable disease. You're going to get a good education. Now go and make something of yourself. Strive. Do well. Be good. But it's nonsense. The Bible tells me that my inheritance is not middle class Christianity. My inheritance is something that can never perish, spoil or fade ever. And my inheritance is this, and your inheritance is this. Love, joy, hope, freedom, fullness of life. Things that can never perish. Things that over, overwrite any material possession. I think that ha- having Netflix is a blessing, but God doesn't agree with me, probably. He doesn't think that me binging on Stranger Things is the blessing that I seem to think it is. He wants me to have those other things. Love, joy, hope. Listen to me, my friends. I mean this. And I didn't know what the gospel was until I was in my 30s. I'm 37 now. And the reason I get excited and a bit emotional sometimes is because no one told me. No one told me how good the good news was. And I believe it now and I know it to be true and it's changed my life. And I want you to hear this. Freedom is your birthright. Freedom is your birthright. You have a large share in hope. Laughter was created with you in mind. I'm not just talking about you collectively. I'm talking about you and you and you. All of you. Jesus knows you. He laid down his life for you because you are worth it. You are worth it. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fully known and fully accepted. Even as you are fully known. That's why we call it the gospel because it's good news. So it might be weird. Like my story was that I, like for, for years I didn't, understand, like I didn't understand why my life wasn't different, why I didn't see God at work in my life, why I didn't see people becoming Christians. It's because I wasn't living out the gospel. I was living out middle-class Christianity. And it's not good because there's something better. So it might seem weird. If you're here and you're not a, you're not a Christian, um, it might seem weird that I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you that God exists, but I'm not trying to convince you that God exists because it won't change. Believing that God exists won't change anything. Even believing that Jesus rose from the dead won't change anything in and of itself. The book of James tells us that even the demons believe that. I don't think they're Christians, most of them. Look at the state that they're in. Hashtag awkward. (laughs) What changes things is not believing that Jesus rose from the dead. That won't change things. Things won't change. Things change when your mind changes. What changes things is understanding that God actually changes things. 
What changes things? The understanding that God's love is a real thing that you can experience. He is a real person that you can know fully. You can receive his love as the greatest power in the universe and then let it. Receive it. That's the difference between good advice and good news. Advice is if you do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z can happen. And until you do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z can't happen. That's advice. That's what religion tells you. You need to do this. News is the opposite. News is that something has already happened, and we are learning about it. And all we have to do is receive it. All you have to do is receive it. That's good news. And that's the story of Jesus. It's there freely to be received. And that's what changes things. That's what Paul says in, in Romans 12, where he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your mind. Change your mind about what? About who you were born to be. You weren't born to just have a really just bleak life. You weren't born just to be nobody, just to be downtrodden. You were born to be like God. You were born to be a child of God. And as a child of God, you have a father, and it's him. And he's a good, good father. Like, he's a good, good father. He's way better than me. My wife says to me, don't shout at our daughters, because if they're naughty, shouting at them will just teach them fear. Give them a consequence, set them a boundary, that'll teach them good behaviour. And that sounds good, I like the idea of that. The problem is, I'm not very good at setting boundaries for my kids, because I don't know what I'm going to say from one moment to the next, I don't know. Like, I haven't decided how I'm going to finish this talk yet. It's really exciting, isn't it? <laughs> so my wife says to me, if they're naughty, give them a consequence, set them a boundary, but I don't know what I'm going to say. So whenever my wife is out I'm, and I'm doing the parenting on my own, I'm so worried that they will misbehave because I don't know what the consequence is that I'm going to say. So this is true. A few weeks ago, my wife was out at Zumba. I was doing dinner in bedtime on my own. Uh, my daughter Alice refused to eat her dinner, and as a consequence, I threatened to kill the cat. <laughs> and I don't know if you've read any books on parenting, but the golden rule of parenting is be consistent. You've got to go through with it. <laughs> I've never, been, I've never seen someone that nervous. I've never been that nervous watching someone eat a boiled egg. Alice, please, finish your dinner. If, if mum, when mummy comes home, you can get a new cat. Think, think about me, I'm going to make this look like an accident. Think about me for a change. So he's a good, good father. And he loves you. He loves you and your identity is, is in that. And once you understand that you were born to be a child of God, then things change and things make sense. And it, we talked about Acts 14. In Acts 14... Um, because it may be that you've never experienced this. You think, well, I like the sound of what you're saying, Andy, but I've never experienced this. In Acts 14, Paul says, God has never left himself without a witness, ever. And it may be that you're not following Jesus and you don't believe in him, but God has never left himself without a witness. And it may be, I'd like to suggest, that the witness that God has put in your life is that of unconditional love. Because I would say that everybody here believes in unconditional love. And I know if you've got kids, I can guarantee that you love them unconditionally. I know you do. You might not like them all the time, you might threaten to kill their pets. But I know that you love them unconditionally. Now, what, what difference does that make? Well, the thing is that there is no other religion where it says that God loves us unconditionally. That doesn't exist. That religion doesn't exist. No one has either <laughs> felt God say that or has thought to create it. There is no religion where God loves us unconditionally. So if any religion is true, then surely it has to be one where God loves us unconditionally. Because how could God give us something that he's not capable of himself? You can't give away something you haven't got. So if we understand unconditional love, if we know that it's true, and whatever you believe about the world, you know that that's true, shouldn't it be that the person who's given it to us is capable of unconditional love? There's only one religion that says, there's only one worldview that says that unconditional love exists, and it's Christianity. And of course, if atheism is true, 
And it, you know, unconditional love is just a byproduct of evolution. It's just an accident. It's not really real. It's just a term that we've, we've given to the flow of molecules. But we could give that term to someone shooting someone else through the head. It doesn't matter. It's all just molecules. It doesn't matter. So God has never left himself without a witness. If you know that unconditional love is true, that's, that's the witness. That points to something beyond yourself. And I want to suggest that that's part of the good news. That's pointing to a God who loves you so much that he would come and find you and die for you and rise again so that everything that's going on in your life doesn't, doesn't get to win. Once you understand you were born to be a child of God, then you can read the Bible like it's true. What's your name, sir? Reese. So Reese can read uh, Galatians 5.1, where it says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And you can read it and you can say, it's for freedom that, God has, that Christ has set me, Reese, free. Imagine leaving today, really believing that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Not just collectively, but you. What's your name? Catherine. Catherine, you can read Romans 8 where it says, uh, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you can read it and say, wow, there's nothing that can separate me, Catherine, from the love of God. Wow. What's your name? Helena. You don't be able, uh, Helena, please don't hit me. I wasn't going to hit you, Helena. <laughs> you can read Galatians 4, 6, and 7 where we sang about it. I am no longer a slave. I, Helena, am no longer a slave, but a daughter. Imagine if you believed those things were actually true about you. How would it change the way you went around? How would it change how you thought about yourself? How would it change how you thought about the people you met? Imagine. And then try believing it, because it is true. And if you're not believing that, you are believing something else. If you don't believe that you were born for freedom, then you'll have to believe that you weren't. And how enslaving is that going to be? And also, when you believe these things to be true about you, that's when you can change other people's lives as well. So let me give you a couple of, a couple of stories. We're, we're, near, we're, we're very much on the way to finishing here. I'm having a lovely time. Let me tell you about... Um, so I live, in, I live in Slawit, Slathwaite it looks like, but it's Slawit in Huddersfield. And me and my mate Ola, who's a Nigerian guy, we went out into Slawit. We were doing some street work. Um, I, don't, I don't mean we're prostitutes. I, I do, <laughs> And I think you knew that, really, actually. I don't think I had to. <laughs> My mind's like, you need to reassure them. No, I don't think they, they knew that. <laughs> we were just going out praying for people on the street. And um, we found this group of teenagers, and we started asking if we could pray for them. And some of them were interested. Some of them were not. Some of them were telling us we were, you know, same-sex attracted or had learning difficulties and stuff like that. You know what teenagers are like. I was really grateful for all of that. Then the ringleader comes up. This, this, uh, he's only 15 years old. Nathan, his name is. That's his real name. And he's, he's a big guy. He's as big as me. And he's not aggressive, but he is confrontational. And he comes and he gets up in my face. And he says, what do you mean? You're praying? Who, who, are you, who are you praying to? Are you religious? What's going on? And I heard God say, and it's really annoying when Christians say, I heard God say, because what does that even mean? What does it even mean? What I mean, what I take it to mean, and what I mean by it, is that I had a thought in my head that corresponded to a feeling in my heart that I should say something. And I said it. That's all I mean. It's the same, it's not this voice in the clouds, it's the same voice that says, you've got to get your daughter from nursery, you're four hours late. It's the same voice as that. <laughs> that might have been God as well, now that I think about it, actually. <laughs> so I heard God say, ask Nathan about his dad. I said, Nathan, tell me about your dad. And Nathan went from being the alpha male to the street urgent, and he dropped and looked at the floor, and he said, I've never met my dad. I said, Nathan, I knew that, because God just told me that, as weird as that might sound. But I've got some good news for you, Nathan. And I'm paraphrasing this, but this is what the gist of what I said. Nathan, I want you to know that 
The longing you have for a dad, I can tell that you long for your dad. I want to tell you that the longing you have for a dad can be met. It's there because it is meetable. It is achievable. It's an achievable goal. And it can be met in God the Father. There is a Father who loves you, and it's him. And the Bible tells me that he knew you before he chose to make you. He knew you before he made you in your mother's room. And it also says that he offers never to leave you, never to forsake you. He's never going to let you down, I didn't say. I said, Nathan, I want, to think, I want you to think about that. I believe that God wants you to know what it's like to be a son and to have a dad. And Jesus can show you that. I want you to think about that. And Nathan said, yeah, yeah, I will think about it. And there wasn't any great miracle. He didn't start crying. He didn't drop to the floor. But I saw something in his eyes that looked a lot like hope. I saw something in his eyes that looked a lot like hope. Because all I had done, all I had done, was to tell this guy who thought he was an orphan that he wasn't born to be an orphan, And God wasn't going to leave him that way. And that's why we call it the gospel. Because it's good news. And someone said to me, did you not convict him about his sin? No! I'm giving him some good news. The good advice can come later. The good news is that Jesus loves him and would die for him. I gave him good news, which is that he wasn't born to be an orphan. He was born to be a child of God. And that's good news. Let me tell you about Liz. Liz um, is a friend of mine, and uh, she, um, when she was a little girl, she wanted to be a writer. Uh, and instead of being a writer, she was abused verbally, physically, and sexually by her biological father. Uh, he used to scrawl the word ugly on her wall. And when she was naughty, which according to him, she was all the time, uh, he made her stand outside overnight with no clothes on in any weather. That's, that's what fathering, that's what the idea of father meant to Liz. Uh, And very quickly, she was taken off her parents, but because she didn't have an identity, she didn't know who she was, and she believed things that she'd been told. Because if you get told something enough times, you will believe it. That's all a curse is. If you get told a lie enough times, it doesn't matter if it's a lie, you'll believe it. And she was told lots of lies about herself and about her identity. And so she then went into prostitution. She became a prostitute as an older girl, but still a girl. And then she was abused sexually by scores and scores of men who didn't understand that they were born to be children of God. And then what happened about six years ago, seven years ago, she met some people who told her a different story, a better story. They told her that that isn't her identity. They told her about a God who loved her so much that he would come to find her in her present, redeem her past and give her a future. Not tell her that she was a wicked sinner. Meet her, not condemn her, offer her love, offer to change her life. Redeem her past, give her a future. And she believed them because it's true and because it was good news. And she became a Christian, which is what she is now, which is amazing. Now, uh, a while ago, she came to uh, our, we run a little retreat center in, in Huddersfield. And she came for a week of prayer. And she started, um, what happened was, two things happened. First of all, after six years of being a Christian, Liz called God Daddy for the first time. Imagine the change of mind that has to happen. Dad meant physical abuse. Now it means unconditional love. She's been transformed by the renewing of her mind. She believes different things now to what she used to believe about herself. She called God Daddy for the first time. The second thing that happened is that she started writing down what she thought God was saying to her. And again, it might seem weird that God speaks to us, but what you need to know is he's our dad. We're his kids. It's a relationship. In a relationship, people talk to one another. We don't just send each other letters. It's a relationship. So I want to read this. She wrote several things, but this is the thing that stuck out. This is what Liz heard God say to her about her. The girl who'd been abused throughout her life by male authority figures. This is what she knows. Jesus 
says about her. And he also says it about you because the gospel's about you. Jesus says this. My cross is not clean. It is stained with blood. My blood that I gladly shed for my people. Do not be afraid to bring your troubles to the cross and to me. I will always listen to you, even if you are angry at me or reject me. I love you unconditionally no matter what you think you have done. I do not keep stock of your mistakes. Each mistake is the very first mistake. I will not persecute you or punish you when you make a mistake. All I will do is love you and throw my arms around you. I can offer you freedom and all you have to do is take it. I want you to share my love with the world and tell them there's a better way. Tell them that no matter what, they are loved by me. If you've never heard the gospel or understood what the gospel is, well, that's it. Congratulations, you've just met the gospel. And it's good news. My favourite, I'm nearly finished, my favourite, um, it's a life transformed by a God who would come and find us. That's the Christian story. I don't know how ridiculous you think the Christian story is. But it's the only show in town. Jesus being born in a manger, in a stable, is the story of God showing up, coming to find us, saying, guys, I'm here, I'm with you. I'm here to show you what I'm like. Jesus dying on the cross is God's way of saying to us, I know what it means to suffer. I understand, I get it, and I'm suffering for you and with you. Jesus rising again from the dead is God's way of saying to death, which otherwise gets to beat all of us, sorry, mate, not today, not on my shift. Jesus rising from the dead is God's way of saying to death, otherwise gets to win, you don't get to. You don't get to have the final say. You don't get to kill my kids. My favourite verse in the entire Bible, which is about me and about you and for me and for you, is Colossians 2.15. And I'll say it twice because it needs to be unpacked. It says of Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Wow! Are you kidding me? Having disarmed the powers and authorities. What are powers and authorities? What are, what are those powers and authorities? Evil, darkness. Anything that would steal your identity. Anything that would lie to you about who you were born to be. He disarmed these. He made a public, he made a public spectacle of them. He lured them out into the open. They thought they got him, but no, he'd got them. It was a trap. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know how silly you think the cross is as a symbol. If you've seen your, grand, your Catholic grandmother wearing it, or old women in the post office. The cross is the thing that killed Jesus. But the cross is a stop sign for anything that would seek to kill you. I mean it. It's a go-no-further sign for anything that would stop you becoming who you were born to be. The cross stops everything. It's all up there. Addiction, depression, anxiety, unforgiveness, physical pain. It's all on the cross. It doesn't mean that these things aren't real. It doesn't mean that addiction isn't real and depression isn't real. But because of the cross, and only because of the cross, they don't get to win. They don't get to have the final say. They don't get to define who you are. Let me tell you how I know. It's like in Lord of the Rings. You know in the first Lord of the Rings film, where they're in the mines of Moria, and Gandalf is standing on the bridge saying to the Balrog, you shall not pass. You're not going to get to my friends. That's Colossians 2.15. You're not going to get to them. I will take you down. 
I will go down with you into the grave because I know I can come back. You have to stay dead because you're death. The only thing that can beat death is life itself, and that's Jesus. That's Colossians 2.15. You're not going to get to my children, to my friend. <coughs> final thing to say. Uh, final story, which hopefully wraps stuff up. Uh, so I, I've been married for um, nine years. Uh, my wife's called Rebecca. Um, my nickname for her is Bambi, because uh, she's cute and a bit clumsy, and I want to shoot her mum. So... Um, <laughs> I, I, always like, I always like to do a joke uh, at that point, because I'm about to tell you that when we got married, she was a self-harmer and I was a massive porn addict. You see how the uh, situation escalates quite quickly. Now, don't worry. People say, Andy, are you not embarrassed about sharing these things? No, because it's not who I am. It's who I was. My identity is not in that. My identity is hidden in something else. But when we got married, um, my wife was a self-harmer. She used to cut herself in the first year of her marriage. She used to cut herself on her arms quite a lot with scissors. She used to lock herself in the bathroom. On one occasion, she uh, threatened to kill herself. She didn't, but it was enough to hear it. It was enough to hear that my wife wanted to end her life. And because, bear in mind, we were both Christians. We were both believing Christians, but we didn't understand that we were born to be children of God. We didn't know the gospel, the good news, that we were born to be free, and that the stuff in here about freedom is for me and her and you. We didn't understand that. Now we do, and that's why things changed. So I can, because I didn't understand who I was meant to be, where my identity was, I couldn't help her in her self-harm. What I did was I retreated, I escaped into massive porn addiction, horrendous porn addiction, and it got worse and worse and worse, and one rubbed off against the other. It was terrible. So what has changed? I'll tell you what's changed. What's changed is understanding who we were born to be, is understanding our identity in Jesus, what he has done for us, what he says about us. And I can stand before you sort of nine years later and tell you that I'm not a porn addict anymore. I don't just do it less or hide it better. I'm free. And people will say, careful Andy, once an addict, always an addict. No, I'm sorry, I strongly disagree. Once a child of God, always, always a child of God. That's the main narrative. My narrative is not, yes, I believe God is good, but I'm really struggling with this. No, I'm really struggling with this, but I know it's taken care of. It's been disarmed. It's been triumphed over. And if I'm not experiencing the freedom of that, that's okay because I'm on the journey. But the narrative is freedom. The narrative is not slavery. You can only have two mindsets in your life, fear or freedom. Pick one. Pick one. Pick the right one. God is pro-choice, but he wants you to make the right choice. So I escaped into, into porn addiction, but I'm not there anymore. And even better than that, I can tell you, I can stand before you now and say that my wife is no longer a self-harmer. She's free of that. Now, when, um, when Jesus came back and he appeared to the disciples, the first time he appeared, Thomas wasn't there. He was at Zumba. And uh, he didn't believe, he thought they were pranking him. Like, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Yeah, yeah, nice one, guys. Yeah, of course you have. Yeah, 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 he's dead. I saw him die, mate. When Jesus came back the second time, he said to Thomas, Thomas, come and feel, come and feel my arms. Come and look at these scars on my hands and my arms. And uh, Thomas looked at them and he said, wow, my Lord and my God. As if to say, it's you, it's really you. Why? Because he saw that they were scars. They weren't wounds. They were healed. They didn't define him. Death hadn't won. And you know what? Eight years after she was a self-armor, I can still see the scars on my wife's arms. But I can look at them now and I can see that they're beautiful. They're like a work of art. They're fantastic. You know, we're following Jesus and we've got the scars to prove it. 
And at the time, eight years ago, I could look at the scars in my wife's arms, and I, I hated it because they, they were bleeding and, and bloody, and they looked like death. I can rejoice now, and I can look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God, it was you, you healed her. Because they looked like death eight years ago, and they, they spoke of death because they were wounds, but they're not wounds anymore, they're scars. And I look at the scars, and they don't look like death anymore. Now they look like resurrection. Now they look like new life. By his wounds, her wounds are healed. Isaiah 53, written three and a half thousand years ago. We live the truth of it today. We understand it is about and for us. That's why we call it the gospel. Because it's good news. You are not defined by your wounds. You're defined by his. Whatever you believe about him, you are defined by his. He came to pay the price for you so that you can have freedom. Not so that you can behave better or live a better life. So that you can know freedom and experience it. So that whatever it is you're going through, it doesn't get to win. It doesn't get to have the final say. So I'm just, if it's okay, I'm just going to pray for you guys and, and, and then that will be all right. right? Yeah. Well, don't say amen at the end of the prayer. <laughs> <coughs> and it feels, like maybe it feels like maybe there's two responses today that you can make, because um, we've talked about two, we talked to two sets of people. There's, if you're already a Christian, but you've heard something today, and you realise that you've been living in fear, but now you know, actually, that you're no longer a slave to fear, that that isn't who you are, and you want to change your mindset, and you're going to go away today with a new mindset. As I pray, I'd, li I'd like you to raise your hands. I'll, I'll give you the moment. And then, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news, the gospel for freedom, for joy and love and hope and peace, stuff that's only on offer through you, Lord. Thank you that nowhere else does God come to find us. There's nowhere, nowhere else does God guarantee forgiveness. Nowhere else does God promise unconditional love. It doesn't exist. It's just in Jesus. Thank you that we can experience these things. It's not about how we behave. It's about how much you love us. It's about what we are worth, and you say we are worth it. So, Father, I just bless everyone here in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for how much you love them, how well you know them, and how you just desire for them to have all these good things that you have given them and that you want them to have. It's not a concept. It's the best story out there. It's the only show in town. So if, you've got, if you could like close your eyes, we'll keep it nice and old school. If you close your eyes and sort of bow your head. And just as we're in this space now, if, if you are already someone who calls himself a Christian, but, but you realise you, you want to live differently. You don't want to live in the fear you've been living in anymore and you're choosing not to. Could you just like, with everyone with their eyes closed, could you just raise your hand now? If you are a Christian but you're choosing, you've heard something today and you realise that it's, it's time to stop living in fear because that's not your identity, that's not your birthright. That's amazing. Loads of hands. That's fantastic. Praise God. Praise God. You can put your hands down now. And if you're here... This morning, and you haven't previously called yourself a Christian, but you've heard something today and you realise, you know what, I want this guy. I, I, I want this love. I need this. Not, have you heard a good talk? Have you been made to laugh? But is the stuff you've heard true? Does it, does it resonate with your soul? Do you want to go on this journey with Jesus? If that's you, with everyone's eyes closed and heads down, could you raise your hands now? If that's you. That is amazing. Praise God. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's the end. And the final thing to say is that um, the thing that changed things with Anne, remember my neighbour Anne, was um, 
when I stopped living in fear and I went to wash her car, I just did a simple thing and went to wash her car. And we became really good friends. And then when she, when she died, just before we left Manchester, uh, she wasn't a Christian lady, but the people all around her were, were Christians because she didn't have any family. But the people around her, her neighbours, us, and even the nurse who was with her, we were all Christians, so, so we were able to pray God's love over her. We were able to talk to her about the good news. And, um, and it was just amazing. And I don't know what decision she made at the end. I don't know what choice she made about Jesus. But I've got this real hope that when it's my turn to go home, I'll get to the gates of heaven, I'll knock on the door, and she'll just be there like this. Hello. <laughs> Amen.